Well, hey, hey, thanks for that, uh, that slam dunk that you threw down on me there a month or so ago. I mean, does anybody, like, look at a sunset, like, on a beautiful day? What is that cat doing? I already gave him a little bit of shit. Am I allowed to say shit? I gave him yeah. a little bit of shit. You meant to say Jeff Passon there, and you said Jim Passon. I said, I said both. All right, and welcome to episode 34 of the Romantic About Baseball podcast. My name is Adam McKinnon, your host, joined as often by my co-host, Jim Passon Jr. Jim. Hey, good morning. Happy Friday to you. And joined by our very special guest today, senior baseball writer for The Athletic, Keith Law. Keith, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. Um, I want to start you off uh, with a question that uh, we start uh, we start all of our guests off with, and I want to know uh, what is square one for for your for your baseball life. Where is what's your baseball origin story? So the answer is a little different depending on who you ask. It's probably better to ask my mom, <laughs> uh, who was the biggest baseball fan in the family, and who swears I watched the 76, 77, 78 World Series with her. On the couch on Long Island, they, she and my dad were both born and raised in the Bronx, so they were diehard Yankee fans. And uh, my mother's, let's see, my mother's grandfather was uh, on one side had emigrated here from Italy to the Bronx. Of course, the Yankees were not only the Bronx team, but they were very much the Italian American team. And so the story goes on his deathbed. All he wanted to know was the score of the Yankees games. Oh wow! And so. I grew up like I was going to be a Yankee fan, obviously. I unfortunately do not remember the 76, 78, 77, 78 World Series, which is kind of weird because I certainly have plenty of memories from that time. I just don't remember the baseball games. I vaguely remember the Yankees losing a playoff series to the Royals in 1980. I absolutely remember the 1981 season, by which point I would have I turned eight during the 81 uh, season, during the strike, actually. Mm. So I remember that. I remember opening up you know, sort of every day opening up Newsday and, you know, being, having a sad because there was no baseball, <laughs> you know, seeing like, oh, the Toledo Mudhens are playing today because that was all there was, right? And Newsday right. was sort of desperate to fill column inches. So let's do that. Let's post minor league scores and standings. And that was sort of peculiar, but, you know, didn't exactly scratch the itch when I wanted the Yankees. And then, of course, the Yankees um, ended up winning that split season, going to the World Series, losing to the Dodgers. And then we're really disappointing for 15 years. And it is sort of amazing the extent to which I stuck with baseball, despite the fact that my favorite team was kind of destined to disappoint me for the remainder of my childhood. I was out of college by the time they won in 96. I was thrilled. Um, we still still very much called myself the Yankee fan until the point where I went to work for the Blue Jays. And you couldn't really be both, right? If I had been a right. fan of an NL West team and gone to work for the Blue Jays, it would have been a very different story. But we played the Yankees 19 times a year, and generally they beat the tar out of us. So there was not really a way to maintain the Yankee fandom. And then, of course, then I left the Blue Jays after a little more than four years and had no particular reason to be a Blue Jays fan anymore. Right. I have no animosity towards them. It's just why, right? They're not. Yeah. You know, I was a fan as long as they were paying me. Exactly. And so truly became team agnostic. I know a lot of writers 
say they're team agnostic and, and not that I don't believe them, but there's a very clear way in which I became team agnostic. After four and a half years, I went to the writing side, was sort of th- actively thought, well, I'm not going to go back to being a Yankee fan. That seems sort of counterproductive. Also, I rooted against them for the last four plus years. So that's <laughs> silly. And just sort of came out not really with a team to root for. And now, of course, after 14 years on the writing side, I have so many friends and sources and friends. Some sources are friends. Mm-hmm. Most friends are sources with all 30 teams. So it'd be even stranger now to say I'm rooting for a particular team. Like when the Nats won the World Series, I was happy for a lot of people over there. And yet, if the Astros had won the World Series or the Dodgers had ended up winning the World Series, it would have been happy for people there too. Like I can't, there's no way somebody wins the World Series and I'm unhappy about it because I know at least one person there who I am happy for them that they got a ring. Right. And, and, uh, I want I want to talk about uh, your your time at ESPN and you know working your way through all of that, but uh, it must be nice now. See, because when you were at ESPN, the thing the thing was that you hated everyone's team, and now mm-hmm. now you're just now you're just team agnostic. Now that you're at the Athletic, yes, <laughs> but I still get that accusation. Somebody said that. God, what was it? Something about the Tigers? Oh, when I did the I did my ten year look back where I redraft from ten years earlier. Uh, yeah. You know, sort of here. Here's who the thirty first thirty picks should have been in mm. my subjective order, um, and then just next day do a column on the misses, the players from the first round who didn't pan out. And somebody said, "Oh, it must have killed you to say something nice about the Tigers pick or something like that." <laughs> it really like it's just so parochial. I'm a national baseball writer. I don't have time to hate your team. <laughs> the, your team hatred is not on my radar. <laughs> no, right? I have other things to do. Right. Um, so I wanted to know a little bit, you know, you didn't just you didn't just magically show up at ESPN and all this other stuff. You you uh, started, you know, with baseball prospectus and and uh, worked your way through I kind of wanted to know, you know, what kind of influence did uh, writers like uh like uh, Bill James, Eddie Epstein what did they have on you and what, what arrived you to them and what did you take from them after you worked with them? So um, funny story. I'm one of the few people of my generation who didn't start with Bill James, actually Eddie Epstein's book on prospects. Um, he did it one year, I think for stats Inc was the first book of its kind that had a much more analytical bent to it. Um, that I picked up. Now, I'd read some stuff online. There were uh, Usenet discussion mm-hmm. boards back when that was a thing um, that uh, opened my eyes to different ways of thinking. I, would, I, I hope I'm not sort of speaking out of turn to say I think I'm a pretty intellectually curious person and try to stay very open-minded. And if you can show me new ways of thinking about something, particularly if it's kind of an analytical bent, uh, I'm, I'm interested. I want to learn. And of course, you know, I may read something and then decide, no, I don't agree with this. But in Epstein's case, you know, he was, I think he's a good writer, first of all, and you know, made it very clear, you know, these are things that my proprietary research has shown are more, more or less predictive for future success for players. Now, not everything he said turned out to be true on specific players or on some of those uh, methods that he used, but it was an entirely different way of thinking and got me to change my way of thinking about players and then sort of work my way backwards through some other writing really over the next, I would say, like eight to 10 years. When I first went to work for the Blue Jays, one thing I did was I went on eBay and bought all of the Bill James baseball abstracts 
and read all of the essays in them. Player comments aren't that useful. But I said, you know what? I need to know. Right? It's like a foundation. Right. I need to know where all this stuff started. Now, a lot of it was out of date. And Bill came up with some stuff that was pretty groundbreaking and also came up with some stuff that was, um, you know, fun but not useful. Game scores, for example. Game scores are not useful for anything. But they're fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tried to do all of that, read the hidden game and read the diamond appraised and um, anything I could kind of get my hands on because I also felt like I was late coming to some of this stuff. I didn't grow up reading Bill James and wanted to make sure anything that was out there in, in the public sphere that I knew about it. And that that would help me. All I really was supposed to do at, at, for the Blue Jays was my biggest part of my job is simply gathering all of the data. It took a lot of time, a lot of coding to collect all of the data that we were trying to use. And then just to be the voice of the other side, right? We had a whole team of scout, whole department of scouts, of amateur scouts and pro scouts. I really didn't touch international. We didn't spend much money there anyway. They had a voice. The idea was for me to be there and be the other voice. Not necessarily a contrary voice, but to give a different perspective. And um, I think I helped and in some ways and probably hindered in some other ways because I took that sort of responsibility very seriously to be one side and to be not necessarily – I never tried to be contrarian, but often would come off that way because the scouts would you know, often would see a player who was maybe a very athletically gifted but his performance data did not support maybe what the scouts wanted to do, where they wanted to take him in the draft or their rating that they put on him uh, if he were a pro prospect. And I think by not by trying to present one side as opposed to being more holistic and saying, how can I put all of this together to give a better overall recommendation? Um, you know, it's probably a big negative in what I was able to offer um, or what I was trying to offer. And it was only really the end of my tenure there and when I went to ESPN directly from the Blue Jays, they said, no, that's not the right approach. I need to be looking, really need to be looking at everything if I'm going to make the best recommendations on players, whether it's to my boss in Toronto or then to the readership at ESPN. Right. Wow. Okay. So the analytical side that you went out and hunted down and said that you were behind on, you started hunting that down, uh, what, about 2002? 2002 is when I went to the Blue Jays, and that was when I said, I got to read everything I haven't read, right? Anything that was out there. And I'd read lots of stuff. And I, the thing is, I, I had read a lot of the disciples of Bill James, right? All of, you know, I was one of the early people at Baseball Prospectus, and I learned from those guys Joe Sheehan and Gary Huckabee and Clay Davenport and so on. Like, I read, of course, I read everything they wrote. And so I was learning from them, and they had all started out in one way or another reading Bill James. And so the insights of Bill James and then the insights of people who started learning from him made their way to me. It's not like I read Bill's work and said, oh, this is all new to me. But I said, this is a foundation, right? It's like going back and reading Plato and Socrates, right? You don't necessarily need to, like all those guys influenced 2000 years of later philosophers. There's still value in going back and reading the original work. And that's what I tried to do is sort of give myself a crash course while I was also trying to learn uh, Pearl Script because that seemed like at the time, probably should have learned Python, but who knew? At the time, <laughs> Perlscript seemed like the best tool for what I was trying to do, which, like I said, was just collecting a lot of data, especially from college and summer league sites where there wasn't a single repository for it. So I spent a ridiculous amount of time writing and debugging code and trying to deal with various exceptions on different sites so that we could just have all of the data. You can't make decisions. But you can't even analyze data unless you know that your data is fairly complete and very clean. And that ended up taking far more time. 
I'd say, than any other single task I had to do while I was with the Blue Jays. Good grief. And and so being at where you were, you thought you were behind. That was 18 years ago. And mm-hmm. yet we look forward to today and the pushback that we receive from the fan side of things on, about analytics is that the, some of the fans just don't like it. They think that it's ruining baseball. You felt like you were behind 18 years ago, and here we are almost two decades later, and people are like, yeah, that's ruining the game. Yeah, I think those, how, how do we those get those folks guys who, over? Uh, it's, it, I was just going to say, to me, there is a certain level of, um, I think in smart baseball, I compare folks like that to creationists. I could also make the comparison to anti-vaxxers, which is probably a little bit more relevant today as we have this conversation. True. There are some minds you're just never going to open. I don't know if you guys have seen Hannah Gadsby's new special, Douglas, on Netflix. It's really great. Yeah. She has a little rant about anti-vaxxers on it and essentially says some of these minds are closed. You're probably not going to be able to break into them. That's some of those people. There are folks, especially there are sports writers who who are closer to my parents' age who are going to die on that hill. Literally and figuratively, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, I, you know what? I'm not reaching them. It's fine. We're not going to change your minds. You don't have to get 100% unanimity on a lot of this stuff. I just don't want there to be so many of them that they're affecting, like, political elections or in our sport. Who to thunk? Know, MVP <laughs> decisions and Hall of Fame votes and even, you know, sort of uh, industry Opinions on players, like they can have, they absolutely can have their voice. Let them say their piece. However, as long as there aren't enough of them that they're holding back the sport, that's the one thing I keep coming back to. So, you know, people, why do you care so much if somebody, you know, overrates Derek Jeter? In the abstract, if one individual person overrates Derek Jeter, I mean, MLB Network is showing like a week of nonstop Derek Jeter programming right now. Really, yeah. really, v- very hyper aware, <laughs> right? Like, um. You know, Mike Trout's still playing, and he's pretty good. Maybe <laughs> him, or Mookie Betts, or Prince, you know, whatever, any of those guys. I would. There's so many current players I would choose. However, if, if one individual person overrates Derek Jeter, it's not a big deal. If the whole industry overrates Derek Jeter, does that lead people maybe to overlook players who are nothing like Derek Jeter, but are superior players? Right. Maybe. Right. I don't want that to affect like how we draft players or how we evaluate players. The whole goal of anybody who does what I do for a team or on the writing side, we want better players. We always want better players. Better players is a better product. I love baseball in general, and I love baseball played at its highest possible level, even though my job often involves seeing baseball played at a much lower level. Right. <laughs> That's fine. The ultimate goal is we want the big league product to be as good as possible. Right. We do that by being thorough and fairly accurate about how we evaluate players at all levels. And that's why I will always rail against uh, people who still insist on thinking about players the old way or who simply say they don't like analytics because it's somehow ruining the game, which isn't even really very historically accurate, but also, like I said, sort of reeks of creationism. I don't like the new way because I don't like it. Right, right. It's It's an opinion for the sake of an opinion. Um, so I, I, wa- I did want to ask you a question about your about um, Smart Baseball, your your uh, mm-hmm. 2017 book. Um, you know, this book was was a very influential book for me in particular because it was my first uh, baseball book I read as an adult. And mm-hmm. one of the things about it that that really struck me is that you know you you're not selling, you're not in the process of selling anybody in this book. 
it is, um, these are statements of objective fact, like the way that you present them, you know, that mm-hmm. bunts are, are counterproductive, the, you know, the measurement of clutch, you know, the fallacy of batting average and things like that. Um, you know, I'd like to know how much of the book were notions that you had kind of like already preconceived, like these are things, okay, I already know this and I'm just putting it on paper. And how much of the book were stances that evolved through the writing process? It was all the former. For it was all the baseball. former. Mm-hmm. Now, that was not necessarily true with the second book. And I know we'll, we'll talk about that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The first book, and the first book was kind of easier to write in that sense because I joke, it just sort of all fell out of my head, right? I could sit down mm-hmm. at the computer and say, I'm going to write about saves today. And then <laughs> there would be 3,500 words you know, before I would stop to get up and like take a leak because (laughs) I just like, I knew it. I knew what I wanted to say. And it was really more of a matter of saying it in the most effective, compelling and somewhat entertaining way. Mm -hmm. I think I was better at the entertainment part in the second book because I felt more comfortable, but in terms of actually presenting material and being able to do so more organically, as opposed to, I think a more typical writing process that involved more research and fact checking and, and, um, revising my own words. That was more with the second book. The first book, it's like, nope, I know what I'm going to say. And I think I'm pretty well grounded in most of it. It was only the last couple of chapters where I was sort of delving into, hey, where do we go from here? Right. Well, that was something where I had to talk to lots of people in front offices to get their opinions on that. Because of course, that's they're the ones who are thinking about what's next all the time. It's part of their jobs. Whereas for me, thinking about what's next is interesting, but not as uh, as immediate as my thinking about how things are right now and how can I just be better at evaluating players today? Right now, did you, um, it's, it's interesting. Cause yeah, like, like I was saying, everything is just sort of stated as a fact. And then at the end of the book, it's like, okay, this is where things could be headed. You know, it's not been very long since this book has come out, but have you already seen movement in some kind of direction with this? Like either you feel like, okay, like I can see a path towards vindication or is have things kind of moved maybe towards a direction, not there yet, but towards a direction that maybe you didn't expect. Um, I'm not sure I could put it into either of those buckets very cleanly. Mm-hmm. I do think there's absolutely been progress. Um, it's been more in fits and starts. We're not seeing quantum leaps forward. And I didn't expect that. Even people I talked to at the time sort of said, you know, the big leaps have happened, at least in terms of evaluating player performance and making player predictions or projections, um, because everyone had the same data by that point. That sort of the advent of StatCast really leveled that playing field. And then it was a matter of what do you do with the data? Everyone has the same information. And a lot of insights were pretty publicly known. So it was more, all right, what do you do now that you have this information um, in-house to make, maybe try to find sort of small and possibly transient advantages, but that you can pounce on for a little bit. And, you know, the Houston, the guys in Houston who'd come from St. Louis were pretty good at finding late round small college pitchers who might become prospects and become you know, big league relievers who could be signed for very little money. I think that advantage has started to close already and it didn't take very long on the flip side i think that just this whole analytical mindset has started to trickle over into other areas like um i have interesting conversations now with scouts and scouting directors about pitching mechanics and deliveries and things that we generally thought were true about what made guys get hurt or would help guys stay healthy people are starting to reevaluate that because we're asking or seeking better data 
and then doing more with the data that we get to try to draw those conclusions. And I think that whole mindset is what's new, that five to 10 years ago, everyone wanted to find ways to keep guys healthy, but it was more gut, right? I don't like that delivery. That looks violent. Now right. we can, teams are starting to try to quantify that, to study what they think does or doesn't matter in, for example, keeping guys healthy or for uh, on the other side for letting hitters unlock more power, potentially get to more power with the launch angle revolution, but it doesn't work for everybody. So we're still learning at the same time that teams have changed their approaches based on things they've learned. Which is nice, right? Because now that we've got that data, just like back when you were working for the Blue Jays, you had the same data that everybody else had. We're back into that again. It's just how you utilize that data. You know, keep researching and then see what everybody does with it. Yeah, it's 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 amazing where it's gotten to. It'll be crazy to see what the next decade brings us. Seems yes, like. absolutely. And then, by the way, at the time with the Blue Jays, we thought we had a brief advantage because we were using college data when not all teams were. By the time I left the Blue Jays, enough teams at least were using college data uh, and trying to get better quality college data that our advantage had started to close, if not closed completely. I really I often told the story of the 2005 draft in the fourth round, turning to one of my colleagues and saying, we don't like any of these guys anymore <laughs> because enough other teams were plundering the college guys that all the good performers were, who had decent scouting reports were already gone. So we could take good performers who didn't really seem to have tools or we could take guys our scouts liked who didn't really perform, but because we weren't taking high school guys at all, we'd really closed off ourselves to the point where we just didn't have, we didn't have as many players left to take. And to me, that was a signal that our advantage had really started to end. And I'd like to segue that to something before we take a break here. I'd like to, to push that towards uh, talking about the draft, right? I mean, mm -hmm. that's a lot of that preparation back then, right? Scouting that you were doing with the data that you have. What about the 2020 draft? We've now realized what we've got in front of us. Um, what's the what's the approach here? How did I mean? Could you help us at least uh, explain to us how we got to a five round draft this year and uh, what's causing it? Is COVID uh, the reduction in minor league baseball and then what effects we might see from a five round draft this year? It's while well, I got you here, I would love to know what you think about it. Sure. Well, the proximate cause is is the coronavirus that uh, the cancellation of the entire spring. Uh, college, high school, everything, not even having combines, workouts, teams can't bring in players for private workouts. Co scouts aren't even allowed to go do home visits with players. It has to be all over Zoom or, or other video conferencing. So that in and of itself was going to lead to a much shorter draft to begin with. And when the players union and the league negotiated their first agreement in late March, they gave MLB the right to curtail the draft to as short as five rounds but didn't have a whole lot of specifics at the time. MLB came back to the union with a proposal for, I believe, a 12-round draft that would sharply reduce slot bonuses from round six through 10 and also have uh, very sharp limits on free agents for uh, to undrafted players signing as free agents. The players' union said, no, that's way too restrictive. Rather than come back with another proposal, MLB just defaulted to the minimum they were allowed to do under that marked agreement, which is what we see now, the five-round draft, severely deferred uh, signing bonuses into next year and the year following, and only $20,000 as a maximum bonus for any player who's undrafted to sign afterwards as a free agent. That is going to mean we probably see fewer top high school guys than normal sign, particularly the second and third tier guys. So guys who might have been you know, gone in the third to fifth round or even in the 11th round 
after the slot bonus period of the first 10 rounds was over and signed for you know, anywhere from 750 to a million and a half or so, but have commitments to good college programs, those guys are mostly going to school at this point. A couple of them will sign, but mo- the vast majority of them are going to end up at school. Now, they may end up at the four-year schools to which they were committed. Many of them may choose junior college and try to come out again next year. But mm-hmm. the fact that you only have five rounds, you don't have as much space to manipulate your cap space, and you can only give out 20 grand to undrafted free agents – means uh, we're going to see a really college-heavy draft. A lot of those high school guys are going to opt for school one way or another. And I think teams in general are going to be mostly more risk-averse. And also recognizing you mentioned the fact that there's no minor league season this year and Major League Baseball is contracting all the short-season teams between the complexes and full-season ball. That just reduces the need for players, period. I'm not saying I agree with it. But the con- the inevitable consequence it was sort of if you did one, you get the other. If you shorten the draft, you don't have the players to fill those short season teams. If you get rid of the short season teams, well, why the heck are you drafting and signing 35 players every year? You don't even have places for those guys to play. So all Major League Baseball had to do was one of the two things, and it causes the other as an inevitable consequence, which was MLB's goal all along. I think they want more control over the minor leagues and to have better uh, have a better. Um, control of their expenses in addition to sort of more macro decisions. And they got it. Coronavirus kind of handed it to them. They were probably going to get a lot of it anyway. But once the pandemic hit and the probability of a minor league season started to dwindle very quickly, it became clear Major Major League Baseball was going to get exactly what it wanted. With the $20,000 max on everybody that's not drafted, all the undrafted free agents, is there mm-hmm. a possibility instead of just seeing them maybe go to junior college that we actually see some of these guys jump over to the KBO and the CPBL maybe in Taiwan? It's very difficult for them to do that. I mean, remember yep. Carter Stewart jumping through a bunch of hoops last year, mm-hmm. last spring, I think, to ultimately do that. Um, I, I wouldn't say no. I wouldn't say it's impossible. I think most players who wanted to do that would simply – Go, who wanted to try to cash in sooner, which is the reason you would go do that, would say, you know what, I'm just going to go to junior college and come back into next year's draft. The 2021 draft isn't going to be worse. It might not be any better, right? We don't know that we're going to have a spring season next year. We have no idea. But there's a chance, right? You could always go to junior college, hope the situation is better next year, obviously hope you improve. And then if that doesn't work for whatever reason, you can – Go back to junior college for a second year. You can transfer to a four-year school after your first year in junior college, after your second year in junior college. It opens up lots of options. And I'm just a big fan of junior college baseball in general. I think for a lot of guys, four-year colleges aren't really appropriate, not for the full three years or maybe just not for the first or second year. It's a really nice intermediate step that also puts very little financial burden on the player himself. So why not? And if I'm a junior college coach, by the way, I'm looking at – Keith Law's list of the top prospects and right. Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo's list and Eric Longenhagen's list and saying, all right, who's, who do these guys like who doesn't get drafted? And I'm calling them the second and fifth round ends and say, hey, you want to come play for me? You only right. got to get one of those guys to change your whole program. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for one of those. That's crazy. Yeah. And so we, we should expect a pretty – I mean, I mean, as long as there's baseball next year and things are kind of normal in 2021 from what we usually saw in 2019 and before, mm-hmm. I would assume that that draft is going to be – pretty stacked in 2021 that's, if, if we're it's my missing. hope yeah that's, that's my hope i don't i don't want to promise because you know the world is very uncertain right now yes. but i'm hopeful that this will lead to you know particularly like if we have a great junior college draft class next year we've actually never really had that 
if we get three junior college guys drafted in the first round, that's a banner year for those two-year colleges. Uh, it would be kind of awesome if the junior college crop next year was tremendous. The high school crop would be what it was going to be. The four-year crop might be a little bit better because some you know, good juniors or redshirt sophomores will go back for another year. So I think the college crop will be a little better than it might otherwise have been. But how amazing would it be if the junior college crop was good and you could go to, you know, two top junior colleges in Florida or Texas and there's 80 scouts there because right. that's where the players ended up. Uh, sign me the, uh, up. I'm awesome. all over that. Well, double, uh, on, on that note, double the stadium. Right. Double the stadium. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, right. right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> colleges could actually like, they don't really make money off athletics, but what if, what if they did? What if you get your, you know, your Carter Stewart, your Adam Lowen, your JC guy, Nick Markakis, those are all, you know, highly touted junior college prospects and say, Hey, five bucks for everybody to come in. Every time that kid starts suddenly, you know, it's not going to be a huge amount of money, but could you make 10, 20 grand for a program that typically made nothing? Sure. That's a win for everybody. That's right. Or be that, or it be that program that ended up uh, having a guy that went in the first round, right? That's right. As soon as the next year yep. happens, right? So that's good for the program in the long run. So, awesome. So on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, um, we're going to talk with Keith about his latest book, The Inside Game. We'll be right back. We're back uh, talking with Keith Law. Uh, we and uh, wanted to uh, Keith. We wanted to talk about uh, your latest book, The Inside Game. And uh, my first question: I just want to read the first first few words and have you kind of explain what it means. Um, the very first few words in the book is, "and quote, uh, this is a baseball book. It's also, I hope, not really a baseball book." Can you can you explain to folks what that means? My hope is that. Look, it's a baseball book because they're baseball stories. I'm not telling many stories that are outside of the world of baseball. But the themes I'm addressing in this book are very universal. Um, it is about the way we think. Uh, I borrow from behavioral economics and cognitive psychology. Those two fields kind of overlap quite a bit, uh, which is very focused on the fact that people are fundamentally kind of irrational and that there are very good um, or very uh, real ingrained reasons for that irrationality and that um, we can learn about these things, hopefully using these sort of entertaining and easy to understand examples that I provide from the baseball world that ultimately uh, can allow you to do a better job of spotting these flaws in your own thinking. And I try to make it clear over the course of the book, if you're human, you fall prey to these various what we call cognitive biases, like, a, like errors in thinking. Mm -hmm. You can't not think this way. What you can do is catch yourself doing it and change your thinking process. Or if you're, say, in a business world or the baseball world, your decision-making process, whatever the process, the relevant process might be, you can change the way you go about making these decisions once you're aware that you fall prey to these various biases. I fall prey to them too. Of course I do. I am human. <laughs> readers might find that surprising. Breaking news here. I am. <laughs> yes. And so I have changed a lot of things over the last 
10 years or so since I first started reading about these ideas to try to catch myself making these kinds of mistakes in my thinking and my writing and my decision making so I can be better, so I can do better going forward. And ultimately, uh, it's, it's an, a never ending process, but you can't even start a, this until you really understand what some of these biases mean. I present a, about a dozen or so of them over the course of the book. Mm-hmm. You don't even have to memorize them all, learn them all. I'm hoping that people who come in and read this book, even if you're not a big baseball fan, you will leave the book thinking about how you think. And if you catch yourself making certain errors, maybe not other errors, so what? You're still better off than you were before you started reading. Right. My wife is a works in uh, mental health. She's a, a victim advocate. And she was mm-hmm. when I was telling her some of the chapters, she was like, oh, well, maybe I'll read this after you, which for her to read a baseball book is like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, my God, let's get married again. Um, uh, well, that's the goal, though. Like, for example, the New York Times, Forbes, Ray's Magazine, which is a magazine for parents, they're recommending the book, and they're not recommending it so much as a baseball book, but recommending it as a as just sort of general nonfiction book worth reading. And that's what I hoped for, is that people would connect with this on a level beyond just the baseball stories, because I was trying to do something more. The first book was just a straight baseball book, and it was for the baseball audience, for my you know, hardcore readers. And I think I accomplished at least what I set out to do when writing that book. This book, I was trying to be a bit more ambitious, and at least in terms of the critical response, I've, I've, I've gotten back what I wanted. It tells me that I at least accomplished some of those goals. Now, we'll see how the general public responds over the next couple of months, but so far, at least, the, the critical response has been not just positive, but really positive in ways that I, I hoped I would get. Sure. There was a couple. Uh, there was a couple chapters in the book, and you use a lot of examples, like you said. Like, I mean, you you open with uh, robot umps and mm-hmm. uh, and things like that, and and so um, there were a couple of ones that uh, you basically use uh, a lot of specific examples. Uh, the Aussie Albies contract and how it was received, and in the same chapter as Pete Rose, there's a lot of interesting threads drawn together. Um, and, but what, what I was thinking was when I was, uh, when I was reading it, I thought, was there, which one of these random instances really inspired this whole concept? What, was there a specific incident or a specific event where you thought, oh, there's something, there's a book in this, or was this, uh, something that sort of grew more organically over time? And no, it was more the other. It was more the other way around. It was more that the I knew these cognitive biases. I've read lots of books and occasionally papers on these subjects because I just find it really interesting. Um, you know, th- I reference thinking fast and slow a ton over the course of the book. That was the first one that I read. There are many others that have followed uh, that also delve into these topics or or into kind of adjacent topics that I just personally find really interesting. This was always my thing. With writing a book, I had small publishers approach me a couple of times before I wrote Smart Baseball with, you know, hey, do you want to write this book? You know, a thousand things every baseball fan has to do before they die, something like that. You know what? I I wouldn't read that book, so I'm not going to write it. That was always my response. I mean, also, like, there was always a sense to it. Does this person actually care who I am or how I write, or are they just trying to capitalize because they think I have an audience? Right. Which always felt a little gross to me anyway. But in particular, it's like, I'm not going to write a book I wouldn't want to read. Um, and so when I had this idea, it really came from uh, my interest in 
cognitive biases and illusions. Can I explain this stuff to a lay audience that has never read Thinking Fast and Slow? And they're probably not going to read Thinking Fast and Slow because that book sort of presumes a little bit of a uh, background in economics or at least just a better familiarity with reading more academically oriented writing. Daniel Kahneman's a brilliant, brilliant guy, but when it comes to writing, he writes more like he's writing for an audience of graduate students. That's fine, but lots of people aren't going to read that. Or they're just not, they're going to read it and they're not really going to get out of it what they could get out of it if it was written in plainer language. And I pitched my uh, publishers at HarperCollins, who also had done Smart Baseball, I said, I think I can explain this stuff in a way anybody can understand it. Because that's how I write. Because, of course, I've never worked at a university, never taught. My way of writing has always been geared towards a pretty large audience. You just have to be sort of comfortable with my overlong sentences and then you can usually follow what I'm arguing. Is there is there an example for, you know, for maybe one of our listeners that is that, you know, is is debating on, you know, to picking up the book or maybe isn't it isn't as versed in this. Is there a, a is a is there a chapter or one that you think is probably most accessible in that way? Is there one you would probably use as an example? Well, the first chapter on mm-hmm. anchoring bias and the need for or the justification for automated strike zones. I put that first for a couple of reasons. But one of the biggest is that everyone's pretty familiar with it. I'm telling you, umpires aren't that great at calling balls and strikes in certain situations. And if you've watched baseball at all, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and I even gave examples from the World Series last year that would be familiar to just about any baseball fan. Most most fans watch the World Series. And so to be able to um, – point to fairly recent examples, something is very fundamental to the experience of watching baseball and tie that to a very specific uh, cognitive bias. I actually ended up tying it to two different ones, but anchoring bias is the primary one I talk about in the chapter. That seemed to me like the perfect way to try to draw people in. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm telling you a baseball story that will ring very true and familiar to you. And I'm going to use that and pivot from there into talking about the cognitive psychology or, or in, you know, in that case, it's more psychology or behavioral economics argument why this happens. This is not umpires just sucking at their jobs. This is not because they're mean. This is because they're human. And this is a very human mistake. And one way to get around a human mistake is to ask a computer to step in for at least that portion of the process where the humans are making the error. Angel Hernandez has never made an error. <laughs> Just ask him. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, it, it's true, right? I mean, the first time I heard about robot umps, I was like, oh, what the hell? no, no, what the hell is that? Oh, you got an umpire already back there doing a job, right? That's, let's leave it alone, right? But right. when you delve in and you start digging in, it's like, do you not want a better product? Well, yeah, I want a better product. Well, here, let me point out where a better product could have happened in the middle of the World Series last year and right. how it changes the game. That's amazing to be able to set that up for somebody even just like me. Well, here's my argument also is is impersonal, right? We can pick on Angel Hernandez. We can pick on Joe West. You can pick on lots of specific umpires. And there are some who I think are pretty bad at their job. I often talk about the ump show, the umpire who yes. decides to insert himself into the action because he wants to be on camera. He wants the attention. or He just wants the power. Um, that's a thing that that's not what I'm talking about here. That's pretty personal. What I'm talking about here is very impersonal. All umpires make these mistakes because they're all human and they're all prey to these particular biases, anchoring bias. I also talk about something called impact aversion, which particularly applies when the umpire 
doesn't want to be the one to end the at-bat, whether it's with ball four or strike three. That also applies. And it's tough to disentangle the two because they're pretty well related. But either way, that's not personal. That's going to apply to every umpire. And it's a lot easier to make that argument and get people on board with it when you phrase it in such an impersonal way. Just say, nope, I'm not picking on anybody in particular. And I, I, I don't pick on many people in particular over the course of the book. Maybe Bob Brenly a little bit. I'm not sorry about that. <laughs> but in the case of the umpires, I'm not talking about the specific guys that we all rail on on social media. I'm saying this is everybody. This is a universal problem. And we have a solution at hand, one that would be good enough today and would only improve over time once we use it. Right. It's a, it's a, it's the what I took away from the chapter is that, you know, it's it's kind of an impossible job to do for yeah. a human at that level. But we attach the ire, you know, uh, towards those people mm-hmm. uh, because they're there. Um, I kind of want so that that pivots me to a question uh, that I wanted to ask about bias in the current situation that we're in, you know, we, uh, we talk with the labor negotiations, the negotiations to get the season started and things like that are underway. And I have always been, it's just been recently, it's kind of like got me thinking the, what do you think biases are, are kind of at play during this particular time? And specifically, I'm curious about why so much animosity by the general public seems to be directed at players during all of this, as opposed to, and it seems like ownership is, is able to kind of hide behind a, a wall of insulation in some ways. Well, a huge part of the problem is that the media in general are pretty complicit in the whitewashing of owners roles in all of this. You know, the angels just furloughed all of their amateur scouts, um, all their area scouts a couple of weeks before the draft, which to me is also kind of morally repugnant. Their owner, Artie Moreno is worth, I think a little over $3 billion for him to pay those scouts for the next, let's say four months or so, let's say five, right? Because most contracts in baseball tend to end around October 31st. Anyway, at that point they could have let people go and said, well, we're just shrinking the staff in general, five months of salaries for area scouts let's say it's 10 to 15 area scouts. We're talking, trying to do a little back of the envelope math here. That would be like two, three fifty or so. I mean, it's well under half a million dollars. Artie Moreno could sneeze that money out and not even notice it. So for him, but no one, very few people, I should say, actually point that out. When it comes to players, though, it's worse because there is an availability bias at work. We know what the players make. We know exactly how much money they make. That's all published. Mm-hmm. We don't know how much money owners make. And I'm not talking about salaries. I'm talking about profitability. Because one, they refuse to open their books because they're private businesses, which they have the right not to open their books. And two, even if they did, um, if you've taken an accounting class, and I have an MBA, I've taken a couple, uh, it's pretty easy to hide profit. It's harder to hide cash. It's very, very easy to hide profit. And particularly for private businesses where, for example... The Blue Jays, since I used to work there, the Blue Jays are owned by Rogers Communications. Rogers owns the TV stations that broadcast the the vast, vast majority of Blue Jays games on television, as well as the radio rights, too. TV is much bigger money. What they can do, for example, is Rogers could say that uh, their TV station will pay the Blue Jays $1, not even just $1, $1 Canadian dollar, 
a year <laughs> for the rights to broadcast those Blue Jays games. Suddenly, the Blue Jays look like they're losing a ton of money, but the TV station is incredibly profitable because they are paying well below market rates for the TV rights. That is probably legal, Le- legal, not illegal, just so people hear me, hear me clearly. There's yeah. nothing actually wrong with that because from a tax perspective, the whole company's paying. You're not paying taxes just from division to division to division. But it does mean if somebody said, hey, Blue Jays, open your books – they could open the books, and depending on what their actual price is, we call it transfer pricing when it's inside of a company like that. I don't know what exactly the Blue Jays are charging their sister company for TV rights. I can guarantee you it's not the market value. It will be yep. underpriced, so it makes the Blue Jays look way less profitable than they actually are. Everybody does this. They absolutely do this. And even if they weren't doing it, they would hurry up and do it the moment that somebody ordered them to open their books. Right. Because they have no interest in telling people just how insanely profitable owning a Major League Baseball team is. Not to mention all the capital appreciation that comes with that. Well, guess what? That information isn't published. Most people don't really grasp the capital appreciation part because it's not realized until the club is eventually sold. And people just generally in the United States, for reasons I will never understand, tend to favor capital over labor whenever there's some kind of labor dispute. When there's right. a strike, it, who did, when you have a teacher strike or other public worker strike especially, who do people blame? They blame the public. They blame the workers. They don't go after management. I, I'll never understand that second part. But in baseball, you can at least understand part of it because players, appear they're very highly paid and their salaries are public. Your mind will immediately go to that. Well, I know Mike Trout makes $30 million a year. You don't actually know how much money Artie Moreno makes. You know it's a lot, but you don't have a number to put on that. And it's very hard for your brain to compare Mike Trout's salary, Albert Pujols' salary, who makes a tremendous amount of money to not be very good. Compare that to what the Angels are raking in off of the products of the labor of their individual players. Right. In the millionaires versus billionaires, it seems like we always hate the lesser of the two. Right, which is totally bizarre to me. Billionaires are not like you. And as has become very clear with them, with the A's, whose primary owner uh, is worth a little over $2 billion, they just furloughed a bunch of scouts. And they're not paying their minor leaguers the minuscule stipend those guys were getting until... But those minor minor leaguers can't go work for anybody else either. They're not free agents. They're just not getting paid. Why isn't all the vitriol directed at these owners who, again, if they wrote a check for $1 million to, of their own money to put into those teams, they could pay for their scouts and they could pay for their minor leaguers for several months. There would not be an issue. Why don't we have the expectation that they'll do that in a society where our structure, our regulations, our government allowed these guys to accumulate nine and ten figure fortunes? We should at least be at ten or even eleven figure fortunes. I should True. say. Yeah. <laughs> we should. Is there no obligation then on them to turn around and say, look, I'll share 0.1% of my fortune just to keep people employed and above water in the midst of the biggest national emergency in 80 years? Apparently there isn't. Yeah, and that's that's the availability bias that you talk about in the book. Yep, exactly. It really – and it's frustrating to watch it play out in real time like this. Many things I wrote about in the book – I I talk about anti-vaxxers and even talk about what's going to happen when the next pandemic hits. I didn't know this was coming when I wrote those words. I promise. (laughs) It's been unfortunately prescient. And I would rather I would take those words back if it meant that we could have an adequate federal response to the coronavirus uh, pandemic going back to March. Right. And so uh, 
just to flip really quick on the on the pandemic since we're here. I mean, I'm an optimistic person, and I have absolutely no optimism for this year. I don't know how they get the testing if the if we can't even test enough nationally, right? Mm-hmm. What, what what are you? What do you see your chances? What are the what are the chances? What are the chances we have anything that resembles baseball in America this year? I, I actually believe not as an optimist, but as a uh, almost as a cynic that something will get forced through. That both sides have so much money at stake that they will create some sort of season. Um, they'll they'll probably fight for another couple of weeks over some of the specifics, particularly over the financial split. But I think it's going to happen. Um, I think it's going to happen, and then someone's going to get sick. I think it's going to happen at the major league level, and there'll be no minor league uh, season at all. At best, we'll have these sort of side taxi squads. Um, where teams are going to have to choose, do I keep more players who are going to potentially be ready to help our big league club as reserves or as fill-ins when someone's injured, or do I uh, put my best prospects? You know, if you're the Rays, right. don't you put Wander Franco, even though he would have started at Double A and he's only what 19 years old? Don't you put him on your taxi squad though, because you want him to continue playing, even if it is just playing simulated games on backfields? Well, I think you do. Um, I, I think there's so many. There's, there are multiple incentives for teams and players to create something for this year. I am far less optimistic about, say, the chances of us doing that without a player getting sick and then causing multiple other people to get sick. Right. And I'm far less optimistic about, just generally, I'm, I'm not optimistic at all about our federal government's capability of responding to this. And that's, you know, we, I don't want to lead us down a big political rabbit hole. Right. But the guy in charge has, has flubbed it. And until there's someone else in charge, my confidence level is not going to improve. Right. Gotcha. The, Thanks uh, for letting me jump off the topic. <laughs> quick. We'll get back to the book. Um, there, there's, there's actually, there's one question that I do have about kind of the book overarching in general. Um, so you've now written a book on, you know, for me, baseball has always been a sport that has lived in two worlds. It's lived in the objective, you know, the, the numbers driven side of the game. It's also lived in the subjective, the sort of, the sort of lore, the things that, like also kind of hold it back, but also give it the the history that draws so many people to it. So you've now written a book on the painfully objective side, smart baseball. Now you've mm-hmm. di- now you've dove in, divin into the the complicated subjective side of the game. Merge the two. Mm-hmm. Merge the two. Now you have the Keith Law world of baseball, an alternate universe of which both sides merge. <laughs> what does baseball look like? Is there anything that the current that and is there anything that uh, it lacks? Is there anything that you feel like because by merging these things, maybe you don't get in in the current world of baseball we have? Um, I don't want to pretend that I know anything <laughs> that the industry as a whole doesn't know. Uh, would there be you know if I if there were sort of one person if I were one person who was in charge of everything who was not just a commissioner but had sort of more wide ranging authority. Um, over the industry in general, would there be things I'd do differently to make the industry maybe more efficient? Sure. I actually would have cut some minor league teams. I was not one of those people who was saying, oh, we're going to lose all these small towns are going to lose their teams and it's bad for baseball. Look, Clinton, Iowa draws like a thousand people a game at most in a terrible facility that no team wants to send uh, to, to which no team wants to send its players for developmental reasons. You get rid of them. I'm fine with that. Do we need really need two full levels of short season baseball between the complexes and low A? Probably not. Most of the players we draft to fill those rosters are never going to see the big leagues. 
Um, I would say I think Major League Baseball needs to take more control over its relationship with the NCAA and say, look, if you're not going to institute limits on how much you use pitchers, we're going to change our rules so that we can draft guys after their freshman or sophomore years. It's pretty big leverage that Major League Baseball has never really been willing to wield. I would absolutely like to see that. There's a lot of things I think Major League Baseball as an industry could do differently, but a lot of those things don't happen for internal or external political reasons, too. And I'm enough of a realist to recognize I can tell you what I do if I were uh, sort of king of the baseball world. <laughs> but in reality, Rob Manfred, whatever we think of the job he's doing, he has to answer to 30 owners and deal with public opinion and negotiate with multiple unions, including the players and the umpires, who don't necessarily want to go along with what he does. So I can tell, I did just tell you a few little things that I think would be uh, positive improvements for baseball. I think the universal DH is, is, I think it's coming anyway, but I think it's necessary. I think the automated strike zone, which I think is probably also coming pretty soon, would also be very good for baseball. There are lots of things I would ultimately change, but you can't, I also fully recognize that plenty of people in baseball probably think the same thing and recognize that for political or practical reasons, they just can't be done or can't be done in short order. Got it. Okay. Um, you know, that's, and that's always something I've been fascinated with. It's just when you try to merge the two worlds, like what, what's the product? What do you ultimately get? I can't imagine in the Keith Law world of baseball that I, I imagine if somebody were to bunt, the whole stadium would stop and, and like, <laughs> whole, and like collectively uh, stop breathing for a minute. Um, so, okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. And, and the book really does kind of, you know, you, you do spend some time, uh, circling back to the book a little bit, you know, you spend some time going back and talking about the good decisions that have come out of these sorts of things, you know, uh, from the objective baseball side and from overcoming the biases on the subjective side too. You devote a whole chapter to it at the end. Yeah. That I thought, you know, in some ways might be the most interesting chapter too, because they say, look, you, you can do this, right? Teams can, plenty of people have figured out ways to try to get around these biases. It doesn't always work, but they've changed their process. And I spoke to different people of different generations. Some people in, the, in that chapter, like Alex Anthopoulos, is a very analytical, methodical thinker. Dave Dombrowski, on the other hand, is much more of an instinctive, almost shoot-from-the-hip type of guy. I would have loved to have spoken to the late Kevin Towers because he was very much in that vein too. Um, and I wanted to get different people talking about these same issues because they would probably, uh, and they did, end up telling me about their decision-making process, things they did to try to get around potential flaws in their thinking that you know, to see that lots of people coming from somewhat different backgrounds within the sport at least could come to would could all potentially recognize these pitfalls and try to find ways around them and to just say it, it is essentially a way of saying first of all a way of saying hey i'm not saying everyone in baseball is stupid because they're not <laughs> but also anyone can do this it does not matter who you are how old you are where you come from you can change the way you think about the way you think Anybody can do this. You just have to be armed, I think, first and foremost, with the knowledge that we have flaws in the way we think. We all do as humans. Once you start there, it is a heck of a lot easier, I think, to then say, what do I do about it? Right. Well, that's good. I'm going to admit I'm still stuck in Eric Nussbaum's book, so I haven't gotten around to Keith's book yet. <laughs> um, but do you touch base about uh, – gambling in your new book at all by chance only, I, in, the I, Pete, only in the pete rose chapter okay yeah i mean i am not a gambler i don't gamble because because math basically yeah. <laughs> um and you know i i don't know that i'm like necessarily at risk for 
liking it too much, shall we say? Yeah. But why, why chance it? I, yeah. I, I, I'm a little bit of a skin flint anyway, at least in certain areas. And if I have extra money, I'm going to spend it on like food and guitars. Yeah, which is there's nothing wrong with that. I'll vouch for both of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at least you can work on that later. When you go, <laughs> when you go gambling, you won't have much to work with later. Right. 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 Exactly. Well, Keith, it, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you come by the show and talk with us. Uh, his new book is The Inside Game. It is available everywhere. And uh, again, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Thanks. Yeah, where should we pick the? Where should we go to pick up the book? Who are you recommending to to, so, to visit? As stores are now reopening, if you have a local bookstore, you can from which you can get the book by all means. If you don't, or just prefer to buy online, I'm sending folks to Bookshop.org. They are a nationwide competitor to the big sort of big box online retail types that I won't specifically name, and it's fine if you want to buy from one of those other places. What I really like about Bookshop.org is that. They are uh, always give a portion of their proceeds to independent bookstores. Sometimes they do logistics for indie stores. Or there's one book I saw that was out of stock. Uh, it might even be Smart Baseball, actually. But they're saying, "Hey, buy it from one of our independent partners here, and we'll help source it for you." Uh, independent bookstores just really need our help to stay in business at this point. And so that's where I've been updating all the links on my personal blog. And anytime I link to, uh, I tell people, "Hey, go buy my book." I always link to Bookshop.org because I really believe in their mission. That's absolutely awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for voicing that. I do appreciate that. Absolutely. Thanks again, Keith. Yep. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks, Keith.